0: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot
1: may be your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. This is the continuation of entry 3113, titled Corpse Singer, written by an exchange member going by the name Donnie Sums, recorded by Cole Weavers. We didn't speak after that. I visited his work a time or two, thinking it best to smooth things over and apologize, but he refused to see me, having ordered his secretary to turn me away on sight, regardless of the matter. And it wasn't until a year later, with little movement in the case, that I thought to bring DuPont's versions of events to Detective Reynolds. We were at our wit's end. The case was largely forgotten by the media, but we still worked diligently on it in our spare time. Until one morning, in a meeting, I offhandedly mentioned the conversation I'd had with DuPont as I was deep in the throes of nostalgia, thinking of my old friend as I often did when the Stillwater case came up. While the version of events might have seemed too far-fetched for me when DuPont had laid it out before me, as I worked on the case up close. with the distance of time, no theory was too outlandish. Detective Reynolds was furious I'd not brought this detail to her sooner but I explained just how insane it had seemed. Quickly, as if every minute counted. As if the gruesome scene were still fresh, and any minute wasted was an opportunity we might lose forever. Reynolds ordered an exhumation to have another autopsy performed. She called in a pair of beat cops, and instructed them to canvas the apartment complex to determine if she had a cat, and took off towards the evidence room to determine if the keys we took into evidence from within the apartment matched the second deadbolt on the outside of the door. And as she walked away, Detective Reynolds called back to me and ordered me to bring Jerry DuPont in for questioning. I felt cold sweat seep from my skin as I realized what I had done. I could see it in the change of her demeanor. Detective Reynolds could see the headlines already. Star detective solved death of Stillwater. However, the headline Star Detective Catches Mastermind Murderer was far more attractive in the eyes of the ambitious lead detective. And I knew that she meant to try and stick it all together in some elaborate way as to benefit her in a more grand newsworthy fashion. But what could I do? She was my superior and ordered me to bring in Jerry Dupont. It was early evening. And I parked outside the back of the funeral home where the adjoined morgue was attached by a covered outdoor walkway and saw Jerry DuPont buttoned up in a dress shirt and tie beneath his rubber apron on the way back from the morgue. DuPont squinted in the light and was less than pleased to see me exit the vehicle. I called after him as he started briskly walking away, ordering him to stop or I would charge him with impeding an investigation that hurt him as much as it hurt me. I'm sick with myself thinking back on this moment. It was a bluff, but all men fear authority in one way or another, and despite his deductive intellect, he was too shocked to see through my deceit. The drive back to the station was quiet and uncomfortable. I tried to explain as best I could what it was that I had done, and that time had shown me that his claim wasn't so preposterous, and that I was sorry but he simply turned his head away and I was unsure if he heard me. Detective Reynolds conducted the interrogation, and I wondered at my desk how she would react to DuPont if he claimed the corpses sang to him in front of her. I didn't see him leave, but Detective Reynolds walked past my desk, wrapping her knuckles on the surface and told me I'd done a good job. For a moment, I felt pleased with myself until I concluded that the context of her compliment was that DuPont might have said something to implicate himself on record without requesting his lawyer to be present. The next day, I went to see DuPont, hoping to sit and talk with him. I wanted to apologize and help set things right, but once again, I was turned away by the receptionist claiming he'd called in into work sick. This did little to ease my mind. By that point, Detective Reynolds was most likely already speaking with a judge to get an arrest warrant, or at least that was my fear. Regardless of DuPont's wish that I not see or speak with him, I knew I needed to help my friend and make right the wrongs I'd unintentionally done. As I left the receptionist at the desk and got back into my car, I knew there wasn't a moment to waste. I drove round back parking my vehicle out of sight of the front foyer to the funeral home and got out. I pulled a set of lock picking tools from my glove box and quietly ran to the morgue where I knew he'd be toiling away and prepared myself for the stench of death and preservation chemicals that would bombard me the moment the door swung open. I looked about as I set to work and realized that was the first time I'd felt the anxiety of crime in my life. I felt the tools catch in the lock and make their way deeper one small tooth at a time until the lock clicked and opened. The room was dark save for a single light that hung over a stainless steel table in the middle of the room. DuPont wasn't there. But it was also the first time I'd ever stepped inside of the morgue. It felt odd to me that although DuPont had taught me so much about myself, I knew little save for that brief family history he'd once told me. I walked around and examined the blood and bile-encrusted drain at the foot of the steel table. The curiosity was simply too much, and although I knew this was an invasion of his privacy, I was not there as part of the police, but as a friend, and so I excused myself. His tools, the saws, the pipes, the scalpels, all sat on a table, pushed against a wall. They were meticulously ordered and cleaned, gleaming under the harsh overhead light. I could feel the cold of the polished tile floor seep up through the bottom of my boots, my breath hung in the refrigerated air. And that's when I heard a whisper. Small. And faint. Hardly louder than the hum of the fluorescent light. It sounded like a human voice spoken through the end of a balloon, whiny and drawn out, escaping air instead of a spoken word. I felt crawling terror wriggle its way up my spine. I could see I was alone, but where had the noise originated? Then again, the smallest whine as if it was escaping a pressurized vacuum, the words indiscernible. I looked low under tables and in the trash. I felt silly as though I was playing a morbid game of hide-and-seek, but still I couldn't tell where the sound was coming from. Finally, I came to the wall where the tiny square refrigerator doors stood in two neat rows of eight. I placed my ear to each, one by one praying that I heard nothing. And one by one, I came away having heard nothing, but too afraid to open them until I came to the final refrigerator door in the bottom right of the wall. I felt bile burn the back of my tongue and the insides of my teeth, leaving them raw and gritty as I heard the whine from inside and a little squeal of fear escaped my throat. I knew I needed to open the door and see what was inside, but the fear kept me from doing just that. I'll admit I'm a coward, because in that moment I found I didn't naturally have the courage to face my fear. And even worse, my mind would not make heads or tails of what it exactly was that I was afraid to confront. I was shaking by then, and I'd love to say it was from the cold of the refrigerator room, but it wasn't. It was only with the brief, invasive thought... The DuPont might be trapped inside that I found it within myself to grip the handle tight and yank it open. It opened soundlessly, and a gush of flesh-infused air gushed out at me. I could taste the body rotting slowly within and had to stop myself from gagging. I could see the bare feet of a dead person facing me and wanted to turn tail and run. But it was then I heard the whine again and the sound of escaping air. And without thinking too hard about what I was about to do, I grabbed hold of the end of the tray and yanked. The body came into the light and I gasped. It was Jerry DuPont, my friend, stark, naked, and dead. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. My friend who I'd spent many nights with, talking and laughing, there in the corpse refrigerator with both his pale-rigered hands wrapped around a knife plunged into his heart, expertly slipped sideways between the ribs to the left of his sternum. I fell to my knees dumbfounded, and tears welled in my eyes. I felt the hot regret of those last two encounters and wanted to bash myself in the face with my own curled fist until I was senseless. I hung my head low and cried. I couldn't hold back my emotions, no matter how hard I tried. I felt responsible for his death, not truly understanding what I was doing when I put forth the theory he told me a year previous. Why had I not claimed it as my own absurd concoction? And then I heard it again. That small line, long and drawn out, was coming from DuPont's dead body. It was the gas bloating his belly, escaping from his lips. Is this what he'd meant when he'd said the corpses sing for him? Inconsolable in my grief and out of my mind with guilt, I bent down, hoping to hear the soft words my friend's voice one more time. I stayed like that frozen in place for an indeterminate length my ear to his mouth until the gas from his body broke free once more escaping through his throat and passing his lips i fell back shocked and breathless i Knew I must be past my wits in shock, but I could have sworn I heard him speak a name. I know it seems odd and macabre, but I sat there a little while longer still, hoping to hear the gas whine and run past his lips once more. Resolved that what I heard was merely a trick of the mind, but his body now lay quiet and deflated. Dupont was simply dead. I walked slowly to my car and radioed the station, alerting them of DuPont's death. I chose not to wait for them to arrive and instead returned home in a daze. I called in sick to work the next day. Unable to face the reality of the situation, I was grief-stricken unlike anything I'd ever felt. But I did turn on the TV to see Reynolds giving a press conference in regards to the Stillwater case played out much like i had suspected but only detective reynolds held back no punches with dupont dead she was free to make whatever claims fit the narrative as he was no longer alive to refute them he was the murderer and he'd confessed to a friend on the force a year earlier according to reynolds as she put it the absurdity of the case made it impossible to solve with rational minds and the culprit jerry dupont Was as insane, sick, and twisted as he was brilliant. At least he got that. However, knowing the cops were closing in, he opted to take his own life in as dramatic a fashion as his elaborate murder of Miss Stillwater had been in order to escape justice and the consequences of his actions. I was disgusted listening to her on the television. I was glad for the two weeks paid vacation I received for my trauma. I don't think I could have stomached the lies when they were fresh, and I'm ashamed I tolerated them at all. I'm a coward. I feared losing my job, a job I'd worked hard for and was proud of, but I let my friend's good name be tarnished. Upon returning to work, though, Reynolds called me into her office one last time before she was promoted and transferred to a national position for the RCMP. I think she was congratulating me or telling me to keep my mouth shut. I couldn't tell because my eyes were transfixed on a, on a small gold ring with a black onyx face sitting innocently among the stacks of papers on her desk. Detective Reynolds was as capable as she was ambitious. And I needed no convincing to know what she had done. Dupont's corpse had sung for me. Tiny Terrors is an anthology horror podcast produced by Pulp Audio and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. This episode was directed by Cole Weavers, with sound production and editing by Mike LeBeau. To find additional information or to join our Patreon for additional content and ad-free episodes, visit our website, www.tinyterrorspod.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TinyTerrorsPod. Or join the Pulp Audio Discord by clicking the link in the description below. Rate and review us on Spotify and Apple. And finally, thanks for listening.